So, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, I know some of you are in recovery. Uh, uh, how many, uh, do you mind just raising your hand if you're like part of a recovery community? I'm just curious. Okay, great. Um, you know, this this um, teaching is something that I, uh, as as we've mentioned, you know. Um, for many years I've been more focused on working with people in recovery and a lot of my teaching is around that. And and this book, uh, I intentionally did not try to integrate it with recovery teachings, even though it would have been easy to do so. Because <laughs> it turns out that love <laughs> uh, or and its opposite, resentment or ill will, are very much, uh, very relevant to people, to addicts and people in recovery. Um, so, I, I don't, I'm not sure why I brought that up, but I, I just kind of thought I would mention it, that, that even when I'm not drawing particular parallels, I think if you're, uh, if you, um, if you want, you will find the connections. So, uh, what I'd like to do uh, now is talk about one of these suttas. Um, and, and partly kind of the story of the sutta, but of course the, the teaching that comes out of this particular sutta, which is one of the early chapters in this book. Um, The chapter is called Like Milk and Water, uh, which is about living in community. So, as I mentioned before, the the suttas often have a story and they have characters in them. And and that's one of the things that keeps them alive and brings them alive. And the, the this particular sutta, it's just, some of them have names that tell you something about them, but this one only tells you where it was given. It's called the Shorter Discourse at Gosinga. And as you might guess, there is also a, a longer discourse at Gosinga. So Gosinga actually was a place, and it means something, it means... Uh, cow's horns or bull's horns and it was named after some trees that were there that looked like cow's horns. So just these little funny details that have been preserved for 2600 years in these teachings. And uh, just a little background on where these teachings came from. So after the Buddha died nothing had been written down of what he taught but he had these followers who were with him. He taught for 45 years. So there was this tremendous amount of teachings that they had heard. And and one of them, his attendant, Ananda, Ananda was one of his cousins, and a bunch of his cousins were his followers. Uh, Some of them were not so easy to get along with. Um, His his cousin, uh, Devadatta, actually tried to take over tried to push him aside and actually tried to kill him at one point. So, you know how family is, you know. It's 
it's a problem. It can really be a problem. So even the Buddha, even the Buddha had to deal with this stuff. So his his cousin Ananda was his attendant for the last twenty five years of his life, and when when the Buddha asked Ananda to be his attendant, Ananda said, "I will do it, but there are two conditions." Well, basically, there's one condition, which is I want to hear everything that you teach over the when I'm with you. And so if you send me away on an errand and you give a teaching, when I come back, I want you to tell me what you taught when I was away. So what we understand is that Ananda heard everything that the Buddha taught for 25 years. The one problem with for Ananda was that he was busy taking care of the Buddha so he didn't actually have enough time to practice meditation to become enlightened like so many of the senior followers and the people that were with the Buddha for long periods of time had these you know very deep uh, breakthroughs we call enlightenment so when when the Buddha died it was agreed that his leading followers and all the ones who had become enlightened would get together and try to organize his teachings and preserve the teachings. And they were going to do this orally because it wasn't going to be written down. At the time, which is five or six, about 500 BC, writing was only used for commercial purposes. It was actually considered to be sort of crude or crass to write down a spiritual teaching, that it should only be spoken. So... Because Ananda hadn't become enlightened, he, wasn't, he couldn't come to this council when they, when they started to discuss it. He couldn't be invited. But everyone wanted him to be there because they knew that he had heard all the teachings and he had the gift of perfect recall. Very convenient. Well, we also understand that at this time in history, people's minds weren't filled with as much useless garbage as they are today. There were no TV commercials. There was no TV. There was no internet. Uh, they hadn't read books. You know, the Buddha was illiterate. It's kind of weird. I, maybe he wasn't illiterate. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming, but certainly he didn't write down his teachings. He didn't have a book contract, you know. So there was this, everybody was kind of, they set the, the date for having this council. It was going to be three months after the Buddha's death, his parinirvana, as it's called, ultimate nirvana. And during those three months, Ananda practiced very hard to try to attain this breakthrough of enlightenment so that he could be at the council. And everybody was cheering him on. So as the story goes, the night before the council, he was still practicing really hard. And he was doing walking meditation and then sitting meditation and walking meditation. And so he's in the midst of this period of walking meditation deep in the night, you know, Lifting, moving, placing, very mindful, very concentrated and focused, worked very hard. And he had this realization, oh, 
the thing that's holding me back right now is that I'm striving too hard. My effort is, you remembered the Buddha's teaching on effort to practice like you're tuning an instrument, not too tight and not too loose, just right in between, in tune. So he said, I, I'm, I can feel I'm, I'm all wound up, I need to relax. And it said that he lay, he decided to lie down very mindfully to, and just as his head hits the pillow, he breaks through, he, wa- he wakes up, he has this enlightenment experience, and then he just lies there in nirvanic bliss for the hour, rest of the hours of the night. And then as the council gathered in the morning for this, in this great circle of wise elders, Ananda materializes at the top of the, the group, and they all go, ah, he got it because he's le- part of his enlightenment was learning to move through space. Uh, you, know, the, the, you can be in two places at the same time. Or, anyway, it was like, oh, he must have gotten enlightened because he can now do this, mag- mag- has this magical power. So then Ananda became the one who recited the teachings. And what he would do is he would recite a teaching and then everyone would kind of toss in their edits. And, and then they would all agree. They would come to consensus. Yeah, that's how we remember it. But most of the teachings in the Pali Canon, these suttas, begin with the phrase, thus have I heard. And the I that has heard was Ananda. This is one of the things that inspires me about these teachings is that they're not these impersonal teachings, but they are actually coming through the voice of this cousin and attendant to the Buddha who was there and saw and heard these, these teachings. And so Ananda will start a teaching by, start one of these recitations by saying where it happened, and who was there. So we get a real a setting, the place, and we get the, the characters involved. So it's, it's real life people in real places. And you can go to India now and they have, there are tours that will take you to many of these places where the suttas were recited or where the, the teachings were given. The, the um, Vulture's Peak, uh, the uh, of course, Bodhgaya, where the Buddha became enlightened, and uh, these various different places that are uh, part of the Buddhist pilgrimage. And uh, in case you're wondering, I have not been there, and I don't plan on going there. So thank you. We can discuss that offline. <laughs> I like Berkeley. New York is a stretch for me, you know. <laughs> as much as I love it here, but getting on that plane, standing in that line. Ill will arises. So this sutta, it's uh, Majjhima Nikaya 31. And do you, uh, is Kathy back there? Kathy? Oh, do you have the Majjhima Nikaya there? I didn't bring it with me because it's too big and heavy. Um, 
So, but this sutta, Majjhima 31, great. I'll, I'll read a little bit out of it for you. Thank you. Nice new version. So the, the you know, f- when you study the suttas, you start to learn some of the n- numbers. There's, a, I think, 152 of them in here, so I don't know what all of them are, but certain numbers I have. So the shorter discourse in Gosinga, which in Pali is the Chula Gosinga Sutta. Actually, not the, that wouldn't be Pali. Chula Gosinga Sutta. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Nautica in the brick house. So, we don't have any, uh, you know, in my study of this, I've listened to various, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi gives talks on the different suttas, and uh, he does not say anything about this place. I don't really know what this is, but apparently there was a brick house in a town called Nautica. And that's where the Buddha was living. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandia, and the Venerable, Venerable Kimbala were living at the park of the Gosinga Sala Tree Wood. So here we have the setting, right? The setup. Then it, when it was evening, the Blessed One, which is what the Buddha is called, take that as you will, rose from meditation and went to the park of the Gosinga Salatri Wood. The park keeper saw the Blessed One coming in the distance and told him, Do not enter this park, recluse. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good. Do not disturb them. So, we just, just to think about this setting, it's some kind of a park, but it's kind of, it's protected. There's a keeper there. And, and so apparently the only people in this park, which is, it's a forest, are these three monks practicing. So I think of it as they're on retreat, basically. And the, the park keeper kind of keeps it quiet. And what else do we learn from this? The park keeper does not recognize the Buddha, right? He's telling him to stay out. And like, okay, dude, you don't get it. So the Venerable Anuruddha heard the park keeper, right? He hears, he's there in there meditating and they hear the guy says, speaking to the Blessed One and told him, friend, park keeper, do not keep the Blessed One out. It is our teacher, the Blessed One who has come. And then Anuruddha calls to the other monks and said, come out. You know, the Buddha is here. Our teacher is here. So they come and they, they sit with the Buddha and uh, whenever we hear about... Um, well, I'll, I'll, read, I'll just read some more cause, uh, uh, rather than trying to. Then all three went to meet the Blessed One. One took his bowl and outer robe, one prepared a seat, and one set out water for washing the feet. The Blessed One sat down on the seat, made ready, and washed his feet. So obviously there's this very respectful way they're treating him. But one of the things that stands out, first of all, we kind of assume that people are walking around barefoot. Because in a lot of suttas, there's foot washing going on, right? Uh, which kind of makes sense. I mean, they're in India, you know, they're, they're monks. They they're not don't wear shoes. If they had anything, it would be some kind of 
slipper, you know, sandals. But the other thing, just, uh, and these are just details that don't have any particular meaning, but I just noticed them, that, you know, in Christian teachings, we hear about people washing the feet of Christ. Right? And even Pope Francis has gone and washed people's feet right? as, as this act of, of love. In the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha washes his own feet. Don't know why that is, but it's just interesting that they don't have that kind of tradition of kind of caring for them. So this is where, for me, the teachings really start. When they were seated, the Blessed One said to them, I hope you are all keeping well, Anuruddha. I hope you are all comfortable. I hope you are not having any trouble getting alms food. So this is a, you know, I've read this sutta many times, and I, I started reading it 20 years ago, and I did not particularly pay attention to this opening sentence, this opening question. But as I've gone back and looked at it, it struck me, because I'm looking at it through this theme of love, that here's the Buddha, he's this enlightened master, going to visit these monks who are in, on retreat, trying to become enlightened, but the first thing he asks them is, are you, are you getting fed? It's the most basic and vital question about human life. Are you getting food? You know, and the, the Buddha at other times talks about how hunger is the worst kind of suffering. It's why Bhikkhu Bodhi, the translator of this book, has started an organization 10 years ago called Buddhist Global Relief, which sets out to, say, to help people who are hungry in the world. It's not Buddhist global relief to get people enlightened. It's just to, to help them with the most basic form of suffering. So the Buddha addresses this. Before we're going to get on to anything else, you know, more spiritual, I want to know that you're getting fed. And uh, so this brings up, of course, the lifestyle of the monks, which is that they're, they don't keep food, they don't prepare their own food. They live off alms, off donations. That's why we have this system of dana here. That's a part of that tradition. And, you know, there's various reasons for that. There's, but one of the really important reasons for that is that it meant that the monks always had to be interacting with the community. They couldn't just go off and go on retreat and meditate and, and escape from the world, which is, you know, in Western monasticism, that's sometimes how, you know, they live a hermetic uh, life. But uh, that is not the Theravadan Buddhist approach. It was to keep the monks responsible for and, and there to teach the lay people and to give the lay people this opportunity to be of service and to practice generosity and to get the karmic benefit from that. Oh, it's this uh, symbiotic relationship. And so, so that means that wherever the, this park of the Gosinga tree, the Gosinga Sala tree would, wherever that was, there was a village nearby. Because you, if you're getting alms, you don't want to have to spend your whole day going to get a meal. They would... Get up in the mor They would get very up very early in the morning and practice meditation. Probably do chanting, and then after the sun came up, then they would walk to the village, 
and they would walk silently through the village and people would come out and put food in their bowls and they would then they would walk back to wherever they were practicing whether it was a monastery or in this case the solitary wood so you, you don't want to spend your whole day doing that you come back you have your meal and then you go back to your meditation practice so it doesn't tell us anything about where what village they were near but we can assume that they they were near one okay Enough, I'll move on with the teachings. The next, so there's this dialogue. And for me, this dialogue is very revealing. The Buddha asks, Are you all living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes? And so the suttas have a lot of repetition because these are all the same things. Living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. It's five different ways of saying the same thing. Are you guys getting along? And Anuruddha repeats these phrases back to the Buddha, says, yes, we are living in this way. And, but the Buddha keeps probing. He then says, well, how, how are you doing this? How is it that you're getting along? Well, the first thing that uh, Anuruddha says is that he reflects on how fortunate he is. It's an expression of gratitude to be practicing with these people. It is a gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So the, the way I get along with them, which, you know, why do you need to reflect on that? Well, probably there's times when you're getting a little annoyed with them or bored with them or irritated with them. So I remind myself I'm fortunate. So just to pull back a little bit, this is a teaching on how to get along with the people you live with. Okay? So it's not just for monks. And that's why I like this teaching, because it's not just for monks. And in fact, in the index, when I found this sutta for the first time, it's listed under loving kindness, but then it says inaction. Because there's a bunch of suttas that talk about loving kindness, but this is the one that said inaction. And I said, oh, I want to read that one. So that's how I originally found this sutta out of the 152, because I wasn't reading every one of them. So this is about loving kindness in action. How do we live this practice? Living kindness. So he reflects on the, the, the good fortune to be with people who share his path. And then he talks about three ways that he practices loving kindness. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward them, openly and privately. So I act with loving kindness. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness. So these are the three ways that we create karma through thinking, through speaking, through acting. And he does it internally and he does it externally. But this is again, a, you know, a guideline for us. Okay, to be loving, to practice loving kindness, we can meditate on it, but we can also 
act on it, bodily acts. I mean, this kind of language, it's very kind of dry and technical or uh, um, academic, but it just means that I do stuff, you know. I help them. I don't just think nice thoughts, you know. And I also speak kindly to them. So these are the ways that we practice loving kindness. It's not enough to just sit here and go, may all beings be happy, and then walk outside and, you know, kick the dog in the... This final phrase of this paragraph says, I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Now, when I first read this sutta, my daughter was a toddler. And I thought, oh, (laughs) this is like being a parent, setting aside what I wish to do and doing what these venerable ones wish to do. My venerable one, you know, she was, now she's, even more venerable, 19, going on 20. Um, but this is a great teaching, you know, setting aside what I wish to do and doing what the, the people I'm w- w- with want to do. It's also a, a risky teaching because, you know, this is where codependence comes up from, right? You know, giving... Well, if you're always setting aside what you wish to do and only doing what others wish to do, well, that's not healthy either. So we have to be careful with the teaching like this that we don't take it on as an absolute. We have to use discrimination. But the the, the last sentence uh, here, he says, we are different in body, but one in mind. And I think this is a really powerful just reflection to in in our lives, not just with the people we live with or our venerable ones, but to see that, you know, this is the basis for universal compassion. We are different in body, but one in mind. And, and when, we, when we look at our own minds and we look at what the Buddha taught, and we realize he's talking about these universal human experiences, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, all the ways that he characterizes loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all these mental states. He talks about joy, sukha, bliss, concentration, all these mental states he's talking about are human states. None of us can ever have a mental experience that hasn't been had by virtually every human being in history. I mean, there are some extremes that we have that, you know, aren't common, but they are always manifestations of something that are universal. You know, even something like, uh, you know, psychosis. We we all have tastes of of madness, you know, in our lives, not, not, you know, completely losing it maybe, but just a taste of what it means to kind of be disoriented or to get really confused or to get depressed or, or get rageful or, or anxious. And all these things are, are universal. You know, and each of us, we see ourselves as different because we look at the world and I see you're there and you're there and I'm here. And we, you know, we are different in body, although we are actually the same in body as well, right? But what what one in mind? So, 
again, what I enjoy about this sutta is the, the Buddha keeps pressing. <laughs> so he's like, okay, I'm glad that's happening, but you know, I hope you abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. Well, this is really interesting, and, and Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, points this out. Part of reading the suttas is becoming familiar with certain phrases that are used repeatedly. So diligent, ardent, and resolute in almost every occasion where that shows up, it's talking about how you meditate. And particularly in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, you're supposed to be diligent, ardent, and resolute in your mindfulness. Okay, I'm really you know, connecting with my breath. I'm making an effort. Ardent, I'm really engaged. But in this case, the Buddha is asking about them being diligent, ardent, and resolute in the way they get along. And Anuruddha, so just to mention, Anuruddha is the one who keeps responding here. Anuruddha was the senior of these three monks. And you'll learn a little bit more about him as the sutta goes on, but he was a very advanced practitioner. He now, he now, Anuruddha now describes how they take care of their campsite when, they're, when they have their meals. Whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seat, sets out the water for drinking and washing, puts the refuse buckets in its place. So he, this is all, again, like very mundane living, how they live together in a campsite. And you think, why do we have to know all this? I'm trying to get, you know, Buddhist teachings. Like, I don't need all this. But what it tells me is, uh, the way I relate to it is, this is just like the way I get along with my family, with my wife, how we share household duties. And I know how integral to my happiness, how we get along around household duties is and how when we don't get along, how much agitation that causes. Like no matter how much time I spend in my office meditating, if when I come upstairs, you know, my wife is angry because I didn't put away the dishes, you know, all that meditation is gone. So it's got to, that's, it's part of our practice, right? It's not separate. And I think it's a very kind of Western Buddhist thing to try to make it separate. Like, oh, meditating, that's going to like turn me into this different person. And, and I will say that this was one of the splits that allowed me to go on retreats and be, I thought, a serious meditator and still be an alcoholic and an addict, you know? Come home from retreat and roll a joint, you know, like... You know, have a couple glasses of wine and then I'll meditate now. It's like, no, it's not really. I mean, it's okay. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever use intoxicants if you're not an addict. But for me, I was in denial about my addiction. And I actually used my spirituality as a way of maintaining that denial. It's like, well, I'm spiritual. It's okay for me to get high. It's like when I'm high, I'm just being, you know, a, a drunk Buddha you know, stoned Buddha, you know, some kind of diluted Mahayana version of Buddhism. So this is to me about integrating 
our spiritual practice into all elements of our life. Again, living kindness, not just being nice or feeling it, but actually living it, acting on those principles. Well, it turns out that this sutta may have been given shortly after the Buddha had encountered some monks who were not living kindness. There was this large group of monks who were living together in Kosimba. Kosimba. Uh, yeah, they quarrel at Kosimba. Kosimba. K O S I M B A. So there, there was this, this large group of monks, and there were two lead, leaders, two like of the elders there. One of the elders was a, a master of the rules like the monastic rules, which were quite complex. And one of them was more of a meditation master. So one day, the meditation master went to the latrine, which I guess they had like an outhouse or something. And in those days, and as today in India, apparently one of the reasons I don't go there, what we use toilet paper for, they used water for. And the, this meditation master went into the latrine, used the water, and left without refilling the water, which it turns out was a violation of a rule. So by coincidence, the rule master went into the latrine right after him, you know, saw him leave, went in, saw that he had not filled the water. So when he was done with his business, went to the meditation master and said, you know, there's a rule that you're supposed to fill the bucket of water in the latrine if you use it. You're not supposed to leave it half empty or half full, depending on you know, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. And the meditation master said, oh, I didn't know that was a rule. So the rule master said, well, the rule is that if you don't know it's a rule, it's not a violation. But now you know it's a rule, so in the future, don't do it. And the meditation master is like, thank you for illuminating me. Now I know the rule, and I won't do that in the future. So it seems like it's all good, as we would say. Not an expression they had in Pali, but let's just assume. <laughs> their version of it's all good. So then the rule master went back to his group of monks and mentioned that there had been this incident. Well, they took it the wrong way. And they went and they, and they went and were talking to the other monks who were the followers of the meditation master and said, your teacher broke a rule. Like he didn't fit, refill the bucket. And they were like, what? So they went to their teacher and said, you know, the, the monks that are the followers of the rule master said that you broke a rule. And the meditation master said, well, that's not what he said to me. He said that if I didn't know about the rule, that it wasn't a violation. So I, I'm, you know, they're mischaracterizing that. So that those monks go back to the other monks and say, your teacher lied. <laughs> so they go to their teacher. They're saying that you lied. And so all of a sudden, they're just at loggerheads, you know, and the two groups are... Arguing with each other, and you know, you guys are there, you guys didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So the Buddha hears about this and he goes to visit. So let, there's this quarrel going on with the monks. Okay, I have to go and calm them down. He goes and he shows up. He says, what is going on? They said, well, this happened and then this happened and then now this, we're arguing about it. And the Buddha says, okay, you guys got to let it go. You know, this is not proper behavior for monks. You know, we're supposed to be living in harmony. Schism, these arguments are not acceptable. Well, what they said was, you know, we got this. Bugger off, dude. Like, we don't, we don't need you to interfere in our quarrel. We're going to sort it out ourselves. And the Buddha's like, you're telling me, like, you don't want to do what I'm saying to do? I mean, for me, you know, to, today, thinking of, like, refusing the Buddha, like, not doing what he said, it's like, unimaginable, right? But apparently in those days, not all the monks were quite so respectful. So he's like, okay, then, you know, shine on. And he left. <laughs> and so this went down in history as the quarrel at Gosimba. But so you can see why when he goes to visit these other monks, he's asking them, like, how are you getting along? Like, what happens when you... Who's emptying the the refuse bucket, you know? And he gets into all these details. Maybe normally he wouldn't be bothering them about this. So what we what we learn is that like early on in his teachings, the Buddha had these followers who were very devout and very committed to practice. But as he became more and more known, it became kind of a thing, like to go, go become a follower of the Buddha, but people who weren't really fully committed and this is how so later on and in one of the the other suttas that i'm going to talk about later we see him talking about how like you know it used to be easy to run this group but now i've got all these trouble you know people who are disrespectful but i find that very telling you know that uh, uh you know that this was really important to the Buddha, like how we get along. It's, again, not about just meditating, but that, you know, harmony in community is like a core value. And in fact, there's one sutta, tellingly, with the title Enlightenment, (laughs) where the Buddha says that five of the elements, five of the basic elements to getting to enlightenment are about community, and that you need a community you need to be with you know as as um Anuruddha says you know having living with companions in the holy life that they keep you on track you know? and this is another way in which western buddhism we've kind of gotten it a little backwards we have this idea that meditation is about this solitary experience but you know that's not enough you need support they're not just a teacher. You need a community, people that share your values, people that can uh, support you when things are difficult. Um, and beyond that, we need to br- bring these values into our daily life, into our work life. That's why there's right livelihood into our home life. Uh, and... And in another way, in in the way that I was talking about trying to kind of see the ways that we already have positive 
things going on in our lives. When we think, oh, it's hard for me to do loving-kindness meditation. But we, if we see that, oh, you know, I'm actually, I have a harmonious home life, you know. Uh, and, you know, you've worked things out with your partner or your family. And you, know, you see, oh, I already have elements of loving-kindness in my life. You know, it's not something I have to create some special thing that I'm so loving. And, you know, maybe you're not always feeling that, but are you living it? You know, and to, to be able to take some joy in that, to take some pleasure in the fact that we already have these qualities in our lives. So, the... the way, one way we can characterize this aspect of our practice is as the the foundation element of practice, which the Buddha calls sila. So sila is typically translated as morality, but it really has a broader meaning. It's really about our behavior. And it's about, uh, you know, how we live in the world. So the basics of sila are following the precepts, to not kill, not steal, not harm sexually, not harm verbally, not harm with intoxicants. But then it it broadens out to our relationships and our community and service. And it's seen as the foundation for developing meditation. So I've kind of developed a different way of thinking about these. So the Buddha talks about three elements of the path. So I have a different way of thinking about them. Typically they're called sila, samadhi, panya, which is morality, meditation, or concentration, and wisdom. But the way I see them now is that sila is how we act in the world. Samadhi, or that mind training, is what creates how we experience the world. So when we meditate and we become calm, we start to experience the world differently. When we practice loving kindness and our heart opens, we experience the world differently. Then when we experience the world differently, panya is how we understand the world, wisdom, how we see the world. So this is a, it's both developmental and uh, and it's all happening at once. <laughs> that is to say, you can say, oh, sila builds to samadhi and samadhi builds to panya. But panya actually, wisdom motivates us to behave more skillfully, to be more moral. And uh, meditating and being more calm brings up wisdom, but it also motivates us to to behave more skillfully. Um, So acting with sila is an expression of wisdom and a creator of wisdom. Uh, So these are all interwoven. But it's interesting to think of samadhi as uh, creating how we experience the world. Because like in our different mind states, we experience the world differently. Like if you're in a calm mind state and you get into some, a traffic jam, 
you tend to be like, oh, accepting. Like, okay, it's traffic, that's normal, it'll pass. I just need to just sit here and be patient and it'll be fine, right? I think we've all had that experience sometimes. But then, if you're in a different mind state, you experience it completely differently. This is so annoying. I hate this. It really pisses me off. I hate traffic, right? So it's the exact same thing is happening to you, but you're experiencing it differently because of your mind state. So this is one of the reasons why we practice meditation and we work to train the mind. You know, when we, our behavior, that's important. But if our mind state is always agitated, then we constantly are experiencing the world in this painful way. So one of the ways that I've come to characterize meditation is that I call it neural hygiene. (laughs) Which comes, actually, I realized when I came up with this term, I remembered long ago when I was on the three-month retreat, at the end of the retreat in 1981, the Korean Zen master, San Sunim, came to the retreat. And he had this line that he dropped on us, which was, we know where we clean our bodies, and we clean our bodies each day. Where do we clean our minds? And a, a friend of mine actually wrote a song then, where do we clean our minds? It was this lovely little ballad. Where do we clean our minds? Anyway, it's kind of neural hygiene, right? Every day, we, we, you wouldn't leave the house without brushing your teeth, I hope. And you wouldn't, uh, this is, we shouldn't leave the house without cleaning our minds as well, right? So, in this sutta, it does not end with the, the monks telling about how they take care of their campsite and how they get along the very next thing that the Buddha asks them, and I find this very striking, after them just telling them, yeah, we, we keep our website, our website, yeah. <laughs> That's what we do today. We keep our campsite clean. <laughs> just don't even, uh, uh, that's going to be, I'm going to use that, but I don't know how, but I know I'm going to use it. They say, they say then, every five days, we sit together all night discussing the Dharma. This is how we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. And the Buddha says, good, good, Anuruddha. But while you abide thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, have you attained any superhuman state, a distinction in knowledge and vision, worthy of the noble ones, a comfortable abiding? This seems like a leap to me. <laughs> We've gone from taking care of the campsite to now have you attained a superhuman state? For, for Anuruddha, it's just, you know, all in a day's work. He says, oh yeah, why not, venerable sir? And then he goes on to explain how they've attained all these superhuman states. So, uh, you know, let's hope that that works for us. That if we just take care of our house keep everything clean and get along with our partners that we will attain a superhuman state. Um, 
But the point is in the teachings that, yeah, there is this connection between how we live and our sila and the development of our meditation practice. We might not go straight to superhuman state, but I can tell you that, you know, if things are harmonious in your life in terms of how you live, that it becomes a lot easier to meditate. I did a lot of meditation before I got sober, and getting sober for me was not just stopping drinking and using, it was learning how to live in the world. And it became about livelihood and about relationships a lot, and education and all that, all that had to be developed. And I consider that all to be a part of sila. You know, my, my job is part of my sila, it's part of my lifestyle, part of my living. So, if all of that, if your life is a mess out there, and you think you're going to go and, go and meditate or come to New York Insight and get enlightened, you know, it's going to be difficult because <laughs> you're going to sit down to meditate and all of that stuff's going to come back, you know. Uh, so there's a, a connection between these things, which sometimes is lost. Um, I'm not going to go through all the superhuman states, so I'm not quite ready for that. So, um, I think uh, I'd just like to, uh, you know, I'm thinking we'll take a lunch break at about one, and that's about 20 minutes. And I wanted to do a, sh- uh, a little period of, of formal loving-kindness practice, despite, despite my <laughs> discounting necessarily the necessity of specifically doing that, but I think it's a, a, a valuable training, obviously. Uh, but before we do that, just um, your own re- responses to this, to what I've been talking about. I know it's a lot of, a lot of talking, and uh, so I'd like to hear any questions or just reflections on it, how it strikes you. Okay, if there isn't anything. We can do some some sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.